You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we pray that by the power of your Spirit that our eyes might be open to your glorious majesty of your greatness and to our smallness, and that we might turn to you and live. In Jesus' name, amen. We see in Isaiah chapter 6 this morning the cycle for revival, both personal and corporate revival. For personal revival is necessary in order for the corporate to occur. But what do I mean by revival? I'm not talking about a tent meeting or an organized event, but about the revival of the soul, an acute awareness of who you are and who God is and what he has done for you, and the ongoing reminding and empowering of his Holy Spirit. Anytime someone comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ, a revival has occurred. The believer has passed from death to life. They have been revived. Better yet, they've been resurrected. And we see this revival cycle here in Isaiah chapter 6. We see first that revival sparks a deep understanding of the holiness of God. Who is God? Isaiah tells us in the opening verses, He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory." Now, at this moment, Isaiah didn't get out his iPhone and snap a picture of the great flowing robe. He wasn't saying, oh, my friends have got to see this. But in fact, he was overwhelmed by it. He writes that this is the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah, you probably have never heard of, but if you were ranking the great kings of Israel, he'd probably be top five. He reigned for over 50 years. He helped build up the economic wealth of the kingdom. He built up the armies so they were big and they were strong. And the reason why you probably have not heard of him is he didn't end well. He blasphemed against the Lord and so God struck him down with leprosy. And for the past 10 or 11 last years of his life, he co-reigned with his son and he died a very quiet death and was finally delivered from that terrible leprosy. But Uzziah was known as generally a good king who had done a lot for the kingdom. And yet Isaiah is saying, in spite of all that, in spite of this great worldly king, let me tell you about the king that I saw upon his throne, the sovereign Lord, the God who met Moses in the desert, Yahweh, I am who I am. Holy is he, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And the train of his robe, the hem of his garment, fills the temple. And this is not an observation of beauty that Isaiah makes, but one of it's so great and magnificent that I'm afraid I'm going to drown in it. It's going to overwhelm me. 
I'm going to be overwhelmed by the holiness of God. Our psalm appointed for today, which we won't read, is Psalm 29, where it says, Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The beauty of holiness, not the holiness of beauty. But it is God's holiness that commands fear, it commands respect, and it undoes us because He is truly other. He's not like us. He's perfect. He's without blemish. He's holy. And so upon seeing this and, and hearing the angels who were enough to make you gasp at all, I mean, what happened to the cherubs that are like little chubby babies and, and wings flying around? But here you have with, with eyes all over it and wings all over it. And Isaiah's response is this. He sees all of that and this is what he feels. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What happens when we stand in God's presence? Woe is me. Moses, in the wilderness, asked to see God's glory, and God said to him, You cannot see my face, for no one may see my face and live. When you see characters in the Bible encountering God with the veil rent so that you actually behold him as he is, people die. People are completely undone and destroyed. And we live in a world where people will say things like, if I could just see God, then I would believe. Be careful what you ask for. Because standing in the presence of a holy God as someone who is sinful and broken is going to completely undo us. We cannot stand in his presence unmediated. We don't like this idea about God. We like the idea of a sort of grandfatherly figure when we walk into the throne room for him to say, now come on up here and crawl in my lap. And a sort of the Italian grandmother in whose eyes you can do no wrong. There are elements of truth to that, and we're going to get to that, but suffice to say that anybody who wants to enter into the presence of God on his own merit, in their own righteousness, is doomed. They will be completely undone. And in the world in which we live, even in the church, we have a trifling idea of who God is. We forget that not only are we saved from sin... But because of Jesus, we are saved from God's judgment. That the condemnation is just. Lord, if you were to mark transgressions, who could stand? The answer is no one. What do we feel when we stand before an almighty and sovereign God in our own strength? What do we think of God? How do we treat him? How do we respond to him? Well, if this is the case, how is it that we are able to stand before such a holy God? Some of you are now wishing that your third graders had stayed in here. (laughs) Well, listen to what Isaiah says in verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. 
And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. What is it that cleanses? It's not actually the coal that comes from the altar, but the fact that his atonement, his guilt removal comes from the altar, the very place where sacrifices for sins happen. Isaiah is getting a glimpse of what John saw in the book of Revelation. He's seeing the lamb upon the throne, the man that that Isaiah sees is Jesus himself. And he's been given a glimpse of the altar of Calvary, the once and for all sacrifice that would atone for his sins, where Jesus himself would take on the very wrath of God and take on the punishment and judgment that we deserved. He would take it upon himself. And Isaiah sees this. And he's finally able to stand before a holy God without fear and trembling. Do you know what it means to have that fear removed? Yes, that we're in awe and in fear and respect of God, but to know that we can come into his presence because of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you two fishing stories. One from Luke chapter 5 and the other from John 21. You may remember when John first called his disciples. There in Luke chapter 5, he was there at the seashore in Galilee, and there was such a great crowd that he stood in a boat, and they put out a little bit in order for the crowds to crowd in just a bit more. And there were Peter and all of his companions mending their nets from a hard works night just before, just before they gathered early there in the morning. And after Jesus' teaching, Jesus said to Peter and his companions, let's go fishing, let's put out. And they said, look, we've been fishing all night long, and we didn't catch a thing. And he says, well, let's go out. And you can see in Peter's eye saying, look, we're fishermen, you're a carpenter, we'll stick with fishing, you stick with chairs and tables, and everything will be fine. But just to humor him, Peter says, all right, we'll go out and show you. And what happens? There's such a great haul of fish that not only do the nets begin to tear, but the boat is in jeopardy of sinking. And what is Peter's response? Peter's response in Luke chapter 5 is this. But when Simon Peter saw it, that is the great catch of fish, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Standing in the presence of the holiness of God, Peter here said, I want you to get away from me as far as you possibly can. Because being around you, knowing my own sinful brokenness and your great holiness makes me feel very, very small. Get away from me. The very words that were uttered by the prophet Isaiah. But then fast forward. We know the story of Peter's life, his ministry with Jesus, his denial, even denying Jesus to a little girl. But then Jesus dies upon the cross, his resurrection. But even in light of the resurrection, the disciples wonder, what are we to do now? So they do what, the only thing they know to do, they decide to go fishing in John 21. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, 
cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because the quantity of fish. The disciple that Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. It's the same story, isn't it? Great haul of fish, an amazing miracle, and yet the reactions are completely different. The first time, Peter says, get away from me. But now Peter does everything in his power to get as close to the Lord Jesus Christ as fast as he possibly can. So much so that he's lost his mind. He's stripped for work as a fisherman. And what does the fool do? He puts his clothes on before he gets in the water. All he wants to do is to get to Jesus as fast as he can. What changed? What happened? Jesus happened. Jesus dying for Peter happened. Jesus being raised for Peter happened. And that's the thing. When you know your own smallness next to a powerful and almighty God, when you learn that this very God who didn't owe you anything except condemnation and punishment, that he himself comes to earth and takes on that condemnation himself because he loves you, it makes grace all the more amazing. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Recently, Barna Research said that most Christians have a hard time sharing their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I get it. I understand it. But we see both in the life of Isaiah and in the life of Peter, after knowing their sinfulness, but knowing that they have an even greater Savior, what do they do? Isaiah says this, The Lord says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah says, Here am I, send me. And this broken disciple who had denied the Lord Jesus Christ, who was hiding in the upper room, who instead of going about the work of ministry went fishing instead, we find him on the day of Pentecost preaching to thousands. And when he was hauled up before the Sanhedrin and told, you may not preach the gospel anymore, he said, you're going to have to kill me. Because the mandate that I have from God is greater than any harm that you can do to my body. And that is exactly what happens in the midst of revival. Whether that be the evangelical revival of the 18th century, or the first and second great awakenings here in the United States, or in the East African revival in the 1930s over in East Africa, the first thing that happens is it starts small. It's never a big event. It's normally people gathering together to pray, to seek the face of the Lord. But then they're overwhelmed with the holiness of God and with that, a great conviction that they are indeed lost. That their sin is weightier than they could ever imagine. The burden of it is intolerable. But then their eyes are open to an even greater Savior and they find their rescue in the Lord Jesus Christ and say, this news is too amazing to be pent up. There is something like a fire in my bones. Here am I, Lord. Send me. Do you need revival in your heart this morning? Do you want to see revival in our land? We see it here in Isaiah chapter 6. 
that we would come to know the holiness of our God, that we would know the sinfulness of our sin, that we would know the atoning, mediating work of Jesus Christ upon the cross and His resurrection, and that we might proclaim to the very ends of the earth, to those who fear God, who think that He's distant and they could never get close to Him, and those who couldn't give a thought that indeed their Redeemer has come and that they might turn to Him and live. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that those of us who find our hearts like a parched desert, where we seem so far away, that You would come near and that You would cause us to be awashed in the power of your Holy Spirit, that our eyes might be opened to your goodness and love to us through Jesus. Lord, we do pray for a revival in our hearts, but Lord, we also pray for a revival in our church and in our land, that those who do not know you would come to know you, to love you, and to serve you. And Lord, that we might be given over to gospel work, that we might declare with the prophet, here am I, send me. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.